Hello and welcome to episode 221 of the Armin Show podcast. We've made it thus far, which is wonderful. And this is the first one. There's also going to be on video for YouTube, which is classic, an added dimension to the show. This episode is with Dr. Safi Bakal, author of Loonshots. This book, it's about crazy ideas, getting them forward, and what needs to be done to support them. Uh, along the way, what kind of setting of structure instead of culture needs to be in place before they can work? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. This is great. Now, I always like to first go into uh, background because to me that's the person, right? What are a couple of features that you identify with as far as how would you describe your personality in a way when you were growing up? Things that... Uh, you felt like this matters to me. Uh, I I think when I was a kid, I focused on I did science and sports pretty exclusively. Mm -hmm. I uh, grew up uh, my both my parents were scientists, so I it was just sort of natural. It was kind of the thing we did at home, um, and uh, I also played a lot of sports. I did uh, tennis. My father used to teach tennis, um, so I started tennis, and then I did martial arts and judo and various others, so I kind of stayed with science and sports for many, many years. Right. That's cool. SNS. S-A-S. That's like the side angle side in math. That's pretty cool. So you like science always. You did physics. Your parents both did physics. You've always had physics as part of your life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, they were uh, both my parents were astronomers and I um or astrophysics and I s grew up liking to figure out things about how the world works and that you know one of the most interesting ways for me to do that was through studying physics which in s could help you understand lots of different puzzles of nature and mysteries of science. Mhm. Mm that kind of makes me think of, I've talked to two other individuals in a similar category. Do you know of Charles Cockle from University of Edinburgh or Lisa Randall from uh, Harvard University, either of those two? Yes, it turns out uh, Lisa and I just discovered we live a few blocks from each other in Cambridge. So now we sort of meeting up pretty regularly at the local pub here and um, trading stories. So yeah, I know her pretty well now. How cool is that? I once did a text interview with her, and then I did an yeah, audio interview with Charles. But she's yeah, a very intelligent individual. Amazing. So that's wonderful. You live a couple of blocks from each other. That's nice. The best things happen in these local communications, like, hi, what's going on? And then you talk about something worthwhile. That's right. That's cool. Now, you went to uh, Harvard, and then you went to Stanford for your PhD. I always like to check what are things you took away or remember from those experiences that were notable. <laughs> Things that I remember from Harvard that were notable. Yes. Um, <laughs> I remember uh, people saying you couldn't. I, I remember driving my bike around everywhere on campus, even through the snow and the slush and the sleet, and people thinking I was sort of crazy. But I, um, I don't know why I remember that. I just remember that it was uh, kind of living on my bicycle and in, enjoying it. And uh, uh, I I worked pretty hard. So most I made good friends that I've stayed in touch with uh, for my whole life. Uh, worked pretty hard. And I think uh, probably some of the more 
I remember one time I was in charge of the film. Uh, I, you know, I had some other interests, and I, I, I was in charge of the film group where we would watch films once a week or so in the in the kind of house or the college that I was in for, uh, in my uh, last couple of years there. And I remember I I was not very experienced. And I remember you set at those days it was all you had these film projectors with the two reels. And I remember setting it up once, and I was really excited to see the movie. And uh, so I sat down, you know, in the aisle in front of the, you know, about kind of halfway up to the film screen. And then in the middle, I heard some sort of noise, and I looked down, and the film reel was rolling down the middle of the aisle, all the way from the film projector. It was just rolled. <laughs> I'd forgot to fasten it. It's a button that you fasten the film reel onto the thing. And I was like, well, that's the end of this movie. (laughs) Too bad. (laughs) That's the end of my career as a film projector. (laughs) So that's what I remember from Harvard. Right. My career is rolling away over there. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. I better, I better, I better stick to my physics job because that, that, that one is never going to work out for me. Right. There's little moments you're like, hmm, Maybe. That's kind of funny, though. It actually rolled away from you. Your career rolled. That's good. It just rolled right off and just right down the aisle. And I watched it going straight towards the movie screen. I was like, well, that's the end of this movie. <laughs> right. Life sends you little messages that only apply to you. And you're like, okay. And now we'll do, I will do this other thing. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty cool. And then you went to Stanford. You did a PhD there. Uh, what kind of cool things does Stanford bring to the table in that regard? That was a, you know, Stanford is a great place to... Uh, uh, be a graduate student. I, I was never an undergrad there, but I'm sure it's similar. Uh, I mean, not only is the, it's just a beautiful environment and fantastic weather and great outdoors and hills and ocean, and uh, but they have phenomenal uh, faculty, fantastic students. Um, and they have kind of a, uh, I think I remember when I was there, people, someone was saying, um, you know, at Harvard, everyone uh, talks about how hard they're working and, uh, you know, gets a fair amount done. And at Stanford, they get a, the same amount done, but they, everybody seems to try to hide how hard they're working. Oh. <laughs> and they try to talk about how much, at least when I was there, which is a long time ago, about how much they're doing the outdoor stuff and the fun stuff. And uh, But in the end, it, you know, I think, folks work equally hard and get equally good stuff done. But it was a great place to be a graduate student. Again, I met some amazing um, fellow grad students that I stayed in touch with for many, many uh, years. And I had a great, lived in a house with nine other graduates, big house. And we just, uh, I learned how to cook. I, uh, <laughs> not very well, but you know, you do this sort of joint cooking with your friends. And right. so I learned how to cook, but badly. <laughs> it was functional yeah that's kind of cool I always notice places do have a theme like like you described with Stanford like maybe it had a theme that oh we don't want to show that we're working too hard it's more fun other places have a theme where we have to show that we're working too hard other places people aren't working hard at all there's certain themes to certain areas that probably is still there I know you said it was a long time ago but I've noticed the places have a certain feel that just stays for that region based on the environment or the mountains or how it developed yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So after that, you have worked at McKinsey and then co-founder a biotech company developing cancer drugs. That part is cool. 13 years, you were the CEO of this company, which is 
Sinta Pharmaceuticals, I believe. And that is the that is your element there. You are no longer the CEO there. What are some takeaways you got from that experience? <laughs> um, takeaways from 13 years of running a private than a public company. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, well, you know, somebody asked me recently if I uh, were to go back and give myself a piece of advice when I was starting out, what would that piece of advice be? And um, there's one, uh, I, I grew up with a very kind of scientific or analytical approach. And I think there's a lot of people who come from technical backgrounds. You know, mine was in science, uh, but people, whether it's engineering or mathematics or other kind of academic fields and then become managers or leaders, um, there's a pretty common trap or mistake which is to be very task-focused, engineering-focused, logic-focused, which is explain the logic and people will follow. Mm -hmm. And uh, that turns out to be a mistake. That's not a great way to run things and lead right. things or how things really get done inside large organizations or even small organizations. They get done by through relationships in many ways. So if you are... A manager or a leader or trying to run something or build something uh, maybe when you're very small you can be the person making the product yeah you're stitching it together or programming it but as you get larger your job changes from you know how to do something to what to do something and eventually who will do it and how to help the people around you uh, become really good at what they do and so you end up getting things done through relationships. If you are getting things done by insisting and telling and ordering people around you, that's not going to be a very stable or long-lasting or fun place to work for anybody, either for you or for them. But if things get done by you helping others be the best that they can be in their jobs and careers and professional lives and as people it's much more satisfying for you for me that's more fun to help other people develop to their full potential it's more fun for them and it creates a much better working environment where you're much more likely to get stuff done now it doesn't mean that everything is always thumbs up and you don't disagree it just means that you know a big part of your job is bringing people together and helping them uh, achieve the most that they can achieve. And occasionally you're asked to be a tiebreaker or a decision maker, but that actually ends up being a very small part of what you do. So if I had to give myself, that took me many years to learn. It involved things like empathy and understanding other people's hopes and fears and concerns and doubts and understanding how to bring it forward because most people in groups are um, inhibited and scared of saying, very often scared of saying what they really think for lots of reasons, you know, especially if you're talking to someone who's a boss or who can have influence over your career or even peers that you don't want to look foolish in front of. People are inhibited and often the, the stuff that they're not saying is the most important stuff that you really want to know for the benefit of the team. So 
to do all that stuff, you can't just use logic. You have to understand where people are coming from and learn how to listen to, um, I think one put it, person put it nicely that I, uh, years ago, you have to listen to the music behind the words. They say stuff, but what's really behind what they're saying? And you have to tease that out. So if I had to give myself one piece of advice that I learned the hard way, it's lead from the heart, not just the head. This is a great point. I, I get that. And there's, frankly, I'm going to watch that part back because I need to, but I get that general idea because I've improved in that over the years too because I would present like, let's go. This is the reason why. This will be good for you because this, we can do this. And it doesn't translate. And then so many times I was like, but, and then if I translated more like from the heart, something that connected with the person or was felt like warm or something simpler, it translated way better than what I was doing, putting high effort in. And uh, so I've adjusted over time, but that makes sense completely. You want to connect on whatever level that is that is able to be connected on. Great point. If you don't, suddenly it's like you don't exist to the person. They just they don't get it. They just like, what are you saying? I don't understand. You're bugging me. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. And then you see that from the top down when you're in an organization like that. You worked with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on future research. Have you influenced future research for our wonderful nation? <laughs> That's a really good question. I um, uh, I got called into that project. It was sort of, uh, I think, a little bit of a fluke since I had no prior background in working in uh, policy or science policy or politics. It wasn't really a political position. It was a, thinking through policy and science policy. Um, I was... At that point, I had been running a company for a decade or so. I think, I, yeah, about ten years. And um, the President Obama's uh, Council of Science Advisors was a group of very distinguished, uh, mostly scientists and academics, a few business people, and they had been given the assignment by President Obama to think about what changes should he consider in how we design the national research system of the United States uh, that he might want to enact in his, uh, at the time it was his last couple of years as, uh, of his presidency. Mm-hmm. So uh, they wanted to get a, a group of a couple of people uh, to work on that project. And uh, one of the uh, leaders of PCAST, uh, the leader of that project, was uh, a, had been a professor at Harvard and I had been a teaching assistant for him when I was an undergraduate. And so he knew that I had sort of followed what I had been doing and he knew that I had an academic background and had had an academic career, which meant I could speak his language. He was a physicist as well and I, many of the people on the panel were physicist or biologist or chemist or a distinguished scientific careers, including, I think, a handful of Nobel laureates. So I could speak their language, but I had been in the business world and running a public company. So I had some business experience to the extent that national research affects the economy and businesses. It's extremely important for the economy and businesses and 
U.S. leadership in science and technology. So I had some of that. And then I uh, was involved in the biomedical world. So I was, our company was developing new cancer drugs. And I think they didn't have too many biomedical people. So I had these three things. And so he remembered and called me up. Unfortunately, I didn't have any experience in science policy or history. So, uh, you know, when I when they called me up, the, uh, I decided to accept. I thought I would learn. learn. I guess the, fir- the the beginning was just a sort of an audition. There were all these famous people around the table, and they sort of called me down to Washington. And I saw there was you know fifty or sixty other people, and I thought figured, you know, well, there's no chance they're going to pick me because I I really don't have any experience in science policy or any of this stuff. But, uh, you know, what what happened was I think I made a funny joke. I think that was why they ended up picking. I I don't know. To this day, I don't know. I have to, I'll ask them one of these days. But I, um, there was a big U-shaped table and there were all these sort of very distinguished people, you know, Nobel laureates and generals and, uh, uh, presidents of universities and presidents of hospitals. And, um, uh, you know, they asked everybody to go around and say a minute or two of their, their background. And it was, well, I won the Nobel prize for this, or I was president of that. I, I really didn't have any of that sort of stuff. And, you know, I was going to say one, you know, a little bit about my background, but then I figured like, look, there's no chance they're going to choose. We had a nice time flying down to Washington. I'll have a nice dinner and then I'll go back home to my, my real job. And then the person next to me said, uh, uh, you know, my name is so-and-so. I'm the president of uh, Caltech uh, University, the California Institute of Technology. And, um, you know, we have a very distinguished uh, faculty. We've run all these, you know, prizes and awards and all these Nobel laureates work here and have done all these things. And, we, you know, we're known as a little bit of a monastery. Uh, but we, you know, work very hard and we get a lot of things done. Da 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 da. da. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to say something about my background, and I said, "Yeah, well, you know what? I there's no way they're going to pick me. So let me just say something that kind of." I said, "Well, the distinguished gentleman on my left just mentioned that Caltech is uh, a bit of a monastery, and I would." just like to say that my uh, father was a professor uh, at Caltech, a professor of astronomy at Caltech. And he brought my, uh, that's where he and my mother uh, were when they got married. And that's where I was born when they were at Caltech. And then I said, so I am what you might call proof by counterexample that Caltech is not quite a monastery. (laughs) Anyway, everybody laughed. It's not really that funny a joke, but, but everybody, you know, it was a room full of like scientists and mathematicians. So to them, it's sort of funny. Proof right. by kind of, um, anyway, and then I just was like, you know what, whatever. And, and we moved on. And then the next week they called me and they said, okay, we picked you. You're, you're going <laughs> to, I, I have a feeling it's because I wasn't, I don't know. I, you know, wasn't taking it myself very seriously. Um, but anyway, I got picked for that project and, uh, it was in some ways the inspiration for this book because the first week we started, uh, the uh, chairman of that uh, panel, the project said, um, your job is to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. And I uh, 
I'd never heard of Vannevar Bush or his report. And we had a few months to write a recommendation to the president of the United States. So I figured I better do some reading quick. Um, and I learned that Vannevar Bush was an engineer who, um, at the outbreak of World War II, quit his job at MIT, moved to Washington, and developed uh, for President Franklin Roosevelt, developed a new system to innovate enormously fast and enormously effectively. And the system that he developed and the technologies that he and his group developed uh, ended up turning the course of the war because we had started World War II in 1939 pretty far behind Nazi Germany in terms of the, the science and technology that would make a difference in the war. And not only that, the ideas and the systems and the processes that he developed for innovating incredibly fast helped the U.S. lead the world in science and technology for the next half century. And I thought that was uh, pretty fascinating, not only history, but set of ideas and principles that teams and companies could use because teams and companies often face situations where they're threatened by competitors who have more advanced products or technologies and find themselves in very difficult situations and need to turn it around by innovating fast and better than their competitors. And that's what Bush did. And so as part of that I uh, project, I dug into what it was that Bush did and why he did it and why it seemed to work so well and what are the lessons there that we can take away uh, for teams and companies today. And it turned out there was, if you look, I ended up spending quite a few years, uh, you know, most of the time in my spare time, but later uh, in the last couple of years, full time on this, uh, the research for this book, there's a whole series, a series of patterns through history, history of business, history of warfare, history of science and technologies that give you a clue of what will work and what won't work in helping large groups innovate faster and better. And so that was kind of the origin or the initial spark for this, of the research for this book. That's quite cool. I will say, the part you just mentioned about um, not taking things too seriously, there's a lot of uh, depth I see in that because when you make a joke sometimes, it says a lot. You're not taking the world too seriously because it's not to be. It's You just do things. If you take it too serious, you get rigid and stunted. And so there's I see a lot of wisdom in that. That's a nice feature. So maybe that's what they noticed at that time. Because when you take things too seriously, it just looks... If you're a person looking at someone taking things too seriously, it never looks highly intelligent. It looks sort of like uh, uh, fearful almost. <laughs> so there's some wisdom there. And then I like, so that goes straight into the book, which is uh, Loon Shots. And I liked, my favorite thing about the book is the stories where I didn't know these things. It's almost like historical context more than physics in some parts, but then it connects to the exact physics concept. And you feel like you were there at the time. And I didn't know some of these things that occurred. I felt like I was at the plane ride as it went under the bridge or as Bush was developing 
uh, a way to get things done that leads to technology that we have today. We forget these things. Like exciting things happened decades ago, just like today, amazing moments. And then we don't really have as many descriptions like this that are wonderful and they take you to where they are. I like that about Bush. Uh, I didn't know he did that much, by the way. That was quite, quite interesting. He, The communication with FDR, it's always nice to also, you talked about how he actually spoke directly and you see the communication that have to happen at the top level for things to happen underneath. You don't hear them publicly because they're not really for the public. They're for important discussions. Uh, I like that feature. And then a lot of his, let's see, he helped later on the group of research that developed the transistor, solar cell, laser, Unix, C programming language, all these things developed out of innovation after the war um, from the framework he set. That's a wonderful thing right there. What made you focus on loon shots in the first place? Was it like seeing things that didn't work in organizations or what was the main? Um, I think it was... Uh... <clears throat> When uh, a few years after starting my bio uh, tech company, I my father got sick with a rare type of cancer, and I since I was working in cancer research, I figured well I should be able to uh, help, you know, and got access to the, all the latest science and technology and experts in the field, uh, and I wasn't. There was nothing I could do that made any difference, mm -hmm. and. I more than that, I re recognized that there hadn't been any important new developments in that area and the type of leukemia that he had for you know decades. And so I got frustrated at the fact that there was seemed to be all this sort of promising science and projects that were stuck inside large research labs or small research labs uh, in industry or in academia, and they weren't getting out. And part of the motivation, for doing the research behind this book and writing this was to help get those products that can make a big difference, help get them out of the basements of large companies or small companies and get them out into the real world where they can help. And so that's what I hope the ideas in the book will get used for. That makes sense. Yes, you don't want to see things not get out. I think about this in terms of content. I'm always looking at creativity and content. If someone has ideas or they want to make a cooking channel or something, it would be nice to see that flourish versus later on, like I should have done that and then you can't do anything about it. It's just they would have a thing that they didn't do. So I see it in a different context, but I see it in a similar way. Yeah, you don't want to see unused opportunity. It's very like debilitating in a way. Yeah. Now, I would like to mention uh, Bush who worked with Vail there's Bush Vale rules that have come up from this union. Can you tell us a bit about these rules uh, and what they mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. So um, Bush in the late 1930s started to recognize that Nazi Germany was far ahead of uh, the U.S. in terms of technologies that would make a big difference. And he learned about that from often from Jews that were fleeing persecution. And for example, the Germans had developed these things called U-boats, submarines that looked ready to sink 
uh, strangle the Atlantic, prevent the U.S. from coming to help Europe. And he was right. It turned out the first three, four years of the war, the U-boats were sinking more ships every month that the Allies could build. Germans had these planes that were more advanced than anything that the Allies had, and they looked ready to bomb Europe into submission. And they did within a few weeks in 1940, took over all of Western Europe. And then these two German scientists in uh, early 1939 discovered something called nuclear fission, splitting the atom that put Hitler within reach of atomic weapons, the most dangerous weapon ever created by man. So Bush uh, quit his job. He was dean of engineering at MIT, and he was kind of a genius level inventor, invented the first analog computer. And he had been was familiar with the military. He'd been working with the Navy as a consultant for many years. And he... Uh, understood academia, of course. He had been he had helped build MIT into the leading technology university in the country. But he quit his job. He was number two there, and they actually begged him to stay, but he quit. He recognized that the nation was heading into a crisis and that the nation's defense would be uh, led from Washington. So he quit his job, moved to Washington, and talked his way into a meeting with FDR, President Roosevelt. And that 10-minute meeting changed the course of the war probably more than any other meeting. What he told FDR was, there is a war coming and we're going to lose. It's going to be a technology-driven war and the military is unable to catch up in time to Nazi Germany. And he said, uh, again, he gave him one sheet of paper and on that one sheet with four short paragraphs with a plan. And he said, I would like you to authorize a new group in the federal government that will report to me and I will report only to you. And I will mobilize the nation's scientists for war. I will help develop the technologies that the Army and the Navy are unwilling, unable to develop. And that's exactly what he did. He created something which was called at the time the OSRD and uh, Office of Scientific Research and Development. And they developed many of the key technologies of the war, which turned the course of many critical battles, uh, which is sort of described uh, in the book. And the systems that he developed uh, were used later and became the foundations of the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, uh, DARPA in the US military. And those systems and the same kind of similar ideas and processes are what led the, to many of the successes of national research. For example, you know, the biotechnology industry was crucially dependent on national research. So many of the drugs and treatments that we use today, so many, you know, whether the Childhood therapy for uh, a cure for leukemias came out of national research, the GPS, internet, much of the personal computer technology, the transistor relied on, the discovery of the transistor relied on investments in national research, um, even the original Google search algorithm or Siri from Apple were originally uh, got their start in projects sponsored by national research. So, so much of what has helped the United States lead the world in science and te technology came from national research. And 
a lot of that was sparked by the ideas and the systems and the success that Vannevar Bush had during the Second World War. And what he did, what he understood is that he could never change military culture. And not only that, he shouldn't change military culture because there was nothing individually an issue with the generals. Each of the generals and military leaders wanted new technologies. But when you bring people together into a group, they will form into one of two phases. One phase is where there's tight discipline and execution and emphasis and operational excellence and developing things on time, on budget, on spec to high quality with low risk. And inside the military, that was important and was necessary. And that is why the military is able to produce millions of guns and build thousands of planes and ships and direct millions of soldiers in battle across four continents. You need those systems. You need that high array. Just like in a company or a business, when you are delivering products, you want your core franchise product, whether you're making refrigerators or making computers or getting software out, you want that product on time, on budget, on spec, consistently with high quality and low error rates. A different phase of organization is when you're inventing crazy stuff. That will have a very high failure rate. You expect those things to fail. In fact, if they're not failing, then you're probably not pursuing projects that are important enough. Mm -hmm. So those are, whenever you organize people, and it's not so much about the people, it's about the underlying structure of how you organize them. And Bush understood that. Bush understood that there are these two phases of organizations, just like there are two phases of water. Water can be loose and fluid and the molecules are running around, or the water can be completely rigid, like a block of ice, totally solid, every atom lined up from, you know, 2.8 angstroms away from another atom. Not 2.7, not 2.9, but total rigid order. But it's the same molecules. There's no difference in the molecules. It's just the pattern of behavior is different. And what's different is the temperature. So there are these small elements of structure that can control the change between these two phases. And Bush understood that. You need different structures to get the different patterns of behavior. Structure can drive culture. And you want both. And so Bush understood this idea that you want both and you need both, but it's very difficult to get both because a system can, in general, only be in one phase at one time. A glass of water can only be solid or liquid. It can't be both. Every now and then I, I am you know, giving this sort of talk and someone will raise their hand and say, well, what about a Slurpee? What about a Slurpee? Exactly. <laughs> Well, a Slurpee is is an example of a liquid in which there are kind of a disgusting sugary yeah. liquid okay. in which there are suspended pieces of ice, but it's not stable equilibrium. Those ices are melting. That Those pieces of ice are melting. If you wait five minutes, it will be all disgusting sugary liquid. So <laughs> that is not an example of true phase separation. That's an example of a liquid that's out of equilibrium. Uh, so the question is, can you create an equilibrium 
situation where you have an organization in which you are doing both. You have the solid of high discipline and execution and then the liquid phase of wild, innovative uh, excellence. And there is one exception to the rule that you can't be in two phases at the same time, and that's right at 32 Fahrenheit, right on the edge of a phase transition, right on the cusp. A system can ex exist in both phases. And the way it does is that it separates. You get blocks of ice surrounded by pools of liquid. That's number one, phase separation. Then number two, the molecules go back and forth. That's dynamic equilibrium. So it's not that they just completely separate and stand alone, but you have molecules in that pool of water or swimming around and then boom, they cross uh, the face of a block of ice and they lock. And then they might jiggle off the face of the ice to other molecules and then they'll swim off into a pool of liquid. And there's this constant cycle back and forth. And so that's the key to creating equilibrium, sustainable growth inside a company is phase separation. Separate your soldiers who are working on, let's say, your core franchise, whether it's making millions of guns and thousands of planes and ships or delivering and building your products on time on budget. And your crazy artists who are working on new ideas and wacky technologies that are going to fail more than they're going to succeed. You need both because your, your levels of risk, the tools, the systems, the processes, the language that you use in both of these things are completely different. So you need to separate them. But the key is the dynamic equilibrium, that the ideas and projects go rapidly between the two, that you go from an early idea and then you move it into the field and get feedback and then you use the feedback and bring it back to the early labs and test them and go back and forth and back and forth. If you just have total separation, but no dynamic equilibrium, no back and forth, no cycling back and forth, then you will fail. And that's what uh, Bush discovered, implemented during the Second World War. Uh, and I you know, can't go into all the stories here, but it was pretty dramatic how uh, fast and um, effectively some critical technologies were developed. Doesn't mean that there weren't hiccups, but there was enormous number of useful lessons from how Bush did that during the Second World War and how that worked and how that applies to teams and companies today, how that applied to what, you know, when Apple did not work very well in the first time when Steve Jobs was there and then what changed in the second time when Jobs came back 12 years later and made Apple very effective. Or what happened with Edwin Land and Polaroid when it was very effective and then the trap when you have sort of a Moses on top of a mountain, you know, this myth of the, the, the great leader on top of a mountain anointing the chosen project, the holy loon shot, and how that trap happens and how that ends up being a big problem and then how you can escape that trap. So a lot of these ideas and principles that were there in the system that Bush created and was so important to the United States uh, and to the national interests have uh, application to teams and companies. And so that's kind of what I end up exploring a, a fair amount uh, in the research that led to the book. This is wonderful. Yes. I've noticed there's many, like for example, the Polaroid example that you just gave. I like that story because when I was reading it, I got into it 
following through the steps that individual took to get their innovation, which is wonderful. I really like the steps because if you're a person, you you can't see af- at the end. There's no information to take away. It just happened. But what was it like as the person before it? It's nice to see those steps along the way. And then as far as the two groups, I noticed that throughout the book, this is a key. Like there's individuals in Los Angeles, for example, that work at the city. And that's like a structured, daily, stable, no risk kind of environment. And then there's also people in Los Angeles that are like artist groupings that are creative. And if you mix them, it would never work in any capacity. But if someone is on top and managing the city so that buildings and zoning can work, so the artists and creatives can do their thing in those places, then you have great results. I think about it kind of like that way. And there's very few people that can see it from a broader perspective and include both groups. Because if one group is just the creatives, then it's too uh, impractical. And maybe it can get off into something that's not realistic. And then if it's on the other end, there's no innovation. It's just, we're going to build more ships and more ships and more ships. It never stops. But then you want to have some sort of a, that's cool, a coverage of sorts. Now, one thing is the loon shots described in the book, there's P-type and S-type loon shots, which is a specific categorization. Uh, P-type is for products. S-type is for strategy. Why are those separated into two groups? It's it's important to separate because the uh, people tend to have a blind spot to one or the other. And unless you're aware and think prospectively, proactively about the two types, you might miss some incredible opportunities. So for example, so P-type is a new type of product or technology that people say will never work. You could start with the telephone. People said it was just a toy, it won't be important. Or the transistor, you know, you can never make a switch out of a purely solid state material or the digital cameras or personal computers. These were all products that people said wouldn't go right. anywhere. S-type is is a strategy, a different strategy that people say won't likely make any money. And uh, because of that, it's not worth exploring. An example there would be a young Sam Walton when he was in his early 30s wanted to open up a retail store. He liked selling stuff and that was his dream. He wanted to open up his own store and he was going to go where you would obviously put a new store, which is into a big city where there's people. You have a store, you're selling stuff, you want to put it where there's a lot of people. Uh, But his wife, uh, he wanted to open a store in St. Louis. And his wife said, well, honey, uh, I love you, but I just don't want to live in a big city. I'll support your dream as long, and we'll live anywhere you want in the United States as long as it's a town less than 10,000 people. Uh, So Walton liked being married he also liked quail hunting which is you know a seasonal sport and he knew that there was one region in the country where four states met in a point and there were four different seasons for quail and so if he lived right there he could go around these four states and hunt quail all year round and so he located his first store in bentonville arkansas northwest Arkansas, far away from any big city, rural America. And of course, later, that turned out to be a huge 
success and he disrupted an entire industry, but he didn't know that at the time and there was no new technology. He just did something people thought was crazy, a different change in strategy. He moved his store where there weren't many people and he made them a little bigger and priced off a little cheaper. And even he didn't anticipate how much demand there would be, but there was. So that's an example of an S-type change. And you see that over and over and over. For example, Google was the first, you know, is now a trillion dollar company, but Google wasn't the first search engine. There were, well, the... there were many, many search engines before. Google was something like the 18th search engine. Mm-hmm. But people said, look, there's no money to be made in search. And they just created a different strategy. They said, well, you know, we think the way people are doing search is a little, uh, is not very helpful. And we're going to prioritize search with a different principle, with a different algorithm by the number of links that a given site has. And then they came up with a new strategy, which was to sell ads next to the search results. And it turns out that was worth, you know, roughly a trillion dollars, <laughs> which is Google's valuation today. So uh, that was a small change in strategy rather than any radical technology. Uh, they didn't invent the transistor, uh, but they just had a different way of monetizing stuff that people had never thought about before. Mm-hmm. It is nice. One great feature of this is it makes the reader look at things in a different way. Then I see like a, a store that's uh, cheaper and huge, but far out why they went there, why they couldn't be in the main area. It makes sense, the real estate cost or whatever, but they could do it out there and then uh, everybody starts to go there. I never really thought about that. Also, um, what you just said about uh, Google or like a little thing of strategy can be the defining factor. You don't have to actually change something you put out there, but um, we change our group size in our company or we place it here or we only sell these two months of the year or something that's very specific. Nothing altered, but it was more... It fit the the current moment. Something that was better in the current moment. It's kind of cool to look at it that way. Different perspective. One thing I like, returning to the individual, responding to the world. A lone individual can only do so much, but numerous individuals lead to a phase transition. I very much like this concept because um, even with the companies where people start to go into them and a lot of people follow along, until there's a solid amount, it's not going to be a transition. Same thing with if you want to make a change. If I go somewhere and it's just me, I can't do much. But once it's 10, 100 people, suddenly it's a movement. And then suddenly it passes the, and now that's the thing. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? And is it sort of like we're all part of one collective brain? And so that's just like a decision tree in a brain where like, oh, okay, enough, okay, it decides. Well, there is a thing called emergent behavior in science, which is there's a, those are properties of the collective that you couldn't tell just by an, analyzing an individual mm-hmm. element on its own. And it can start with the glass of water. If you just analyze an individual molecule on its own, you wouldn't get the laws of fluid dynamics or the fact that solids shatter while fluids pour. 
So there are these collective behaviors. And what makes them so interesting is that these collective behaviors don't depend very much on the details of the parts. So all fluids flow more or less the same way, no matter what their molecules are. All solids shatter more or less the same way. It doesn't matter what their molecules are or how many atoms they have or what their shapes and sizes are. So there are these collective properties. Now that sounds just science and technical, but that's true about the behavior of groups. For example, you look at traffic flow on a highway. Traffic flow has two phases. It could be smooth flow where little disruptions make no difference and you just flow along. Or it could be jammed flow where someone touch, touches their brakes and all of a sudden that exponentially grows into a traffic jam. And the reality is that happens always with traffic flow. And it doesn't matter if the cars are Hyundai's or Toyota's or Ford's or Volvo's, you will always see that same sort of pattern of phase transitions between smooth flow and jammed flow. And it doesn't matter if the mothers are grandmothers or young 20 year old guys, you will see that same pattern. The some of the details will change. Do you see it when the cars are at 40 miles an hour or at 50 miles an hour, the change between those two? But you will always see those general features. And so that's the same with the behavior of teams and companies. You will always see the shift between everyone is united around some crowd, you know, wild, crazy idea when teams and companies are small, because everybody's stake in that outcome is huge, and the perks of rank are almost irrelevant. And then when you're at a very large company, most of the time the stake and outcomes are small and the perks of rank are large. And then you will see political behavior and that structure drives culture. That Do you reward outcomes and ideas, in which case you get innovative cultures, or do you reward rank, in which case you get political cultures? But the useful elements there is that once you understand that phase transition, you can begin to control it. You can begin to design highways that are safer. You can add sprinkle salt in water and you lower its melting temperature because you lower the binding energy. And so molecules tend to slosh around more. That's why you sprinkle salt on your uh, sidewalks after it snows. So once you understand those transitions, you can begin to control them and manage them. And it's the same thing with teams and companies. Once you understand the two forces of stake and outcome and perks of rank, you can begin to design teams and companies that are better suited to your goals. If your goal is to embrace wild new ideas, you want to take risks, you, just, you, you celebrate and reward that more than you do rank. And you create structures that are help you do that. Um, so that's kind of the underlying science of emergence, which are these collective behaviors that don't depend on the details of the parts. And that's an underlying theme in the research that I did, which is that innovating well is a collective behavior. I take a lot of insight, self-insight from it as well. So that's kind of cool to because I always make stuff, so I always uh, link to that for myself. You can only do so much on your own. Innovative groups do way more than one person can do on their own. And then uh, you want to have a scenario where it's built to 
create something. If it's me in a group that's not building something, I have no chance. Uh, just a, a, a time check. I'm going to have to sign yes. off very soon. So. Mm -hmm. This will be my last I wanted to check on. Okay. Uh, in the book, you had mentioned the number 150 as far as the key magic number. Facebook has talked about this. I've seen it so many times. And you actually calculated why 150 is a group in an organization that functions above that. It becomes more political. Uh, how did you calculate that number? Well, I, like I said, underlying this idea that teams and companies will experience phase transitions is a um, some a, an equation and a formalism. You could just write down what is typical, those two types of incentives, cash and equity, rank and outcomes. And you can write that down. Having run a company for many years, I would have uh, meetings every three months with my head of uh, human resources, head of personnel. We would talk about compensation and incentives. And anyone who runs a business is thinking about this uh, all the time as well. And people get these two forms of incentives, cash uh, and equity. What's your stake? And kind of what's your sort of, let's say, base salary that depends on your rank in the organization. And when you write that down and you write sort of a simple model that kind of captures the essence of that, you can solve that model and calculate where that phase transition occurs, when groups will shift from being innovative to political, when they'll shift from the incentive shift from encouraging a focus on nurturing crazy ideas to a focus on getting promoted in your own career. So that is a function of aspects of structure, how you count your choices in incentives, your choices in compensation, your choices in how steep the hierarchy is versus how flat it is. All of those weigh in, but you can write down a kind of a closed form equation, just like you can for water. And in water, you see you will shift from liquid to solid at the temperatures equal to a series of parameters. And when you calculate what that is in water, you find it 32 Fahrenheit under room temperature and you know, no, no added salt at 32 Fahrenheit, you'll get this sudden shift. And similarly for a team or a company, if you use typical parameters for a team or company, you'll find that somewhere between 100 and 200 incentives will shift from favoring small groups uniting around crazy ideas to large groups focused where every individual is focused on politics and promotion. Now, the key is that doesn't always happen at 150. The point is, just like water doesn't always freeze at 32 Fahrenheit. You can sprinkle salt in water and then it will freeze at much lower temperatures. Or if you go to the top of a mountain, you'll change, you know, the pressure changes. You will again get a different temperature. So you can control. And so that's what makes it interesting is not so much the number, but those, what I call those control parameters. How do you affect the transition point so that you can design teams that stay innovative for uh, far longer, just like water stays fluid for much lower temperatures when you sprinkle a little bit of salt inside. So that's what makes it interesting. And that's, again, one more aspect of the idea that there are these emergent behaviors inside groups, something that people have not, not really thought about in this way before, since people have been trying to think about this problem, what makes 
groups do the things that they do? Why do they seem to behave in such strange ways when, you know, everybody likes an idea, you bring them into a group, every, they reject the same idea. It seems paradoxical, but this gives you a new way of thinking about what are the rational reasons that are underlying these sort of seemingly irrational behaviors of teams and companies. And so in that way, it's a little bit like behavioral economics, which is about the individual. Behavioral econ is about the why do individuals make some what seem to be irrational choices? What are the rational reasons underlying those seemingly irrational choices of individuals? And what I'm the kind of work that I'm doing about understanding teams and companies is about what are the rational reasons that underlie the seemingly irrational behaviors of teams and companies? This links directly. I just want to include that uh, my last, I believe, two interviews with Alison Schrager. She's an economist, and she talked about risk mitigation and what causes taking more risk or less. And then before that, uh, Matthew Jackson, I believe at Stanford, who uh, he wrote The Human Network about networks and how things propagate. He's linked to what you're describing here, which are about... But yours and yours has more physics base, which is I always like that. Physics always grounds things. It's like the base of everything. And then when you connect it to human dynamics, this is not so surprising based on what's underneath it. I like that concept. This is a wonderful thing. I will go ahead and uh, conclude the episode there. This is wonderful. I'm glad to have had you on this episode. I want to. That is the book right there, Loon Shots. Uh, the stories really pull you in during the book. You feel like you're there at a thing that happened before. I really appreciate your descriptions and explanation at this time because it's very informative. It's I take a lot from it, and obviously the, the viewers as well. And uh, glad to have you on episode 221. Thanks for having me on. You know it. And we are out.